Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation podcast that goes beyond the scenes and in-depth with each month's cover story author. I'm your host, Dan Lucas, the Senior Director of Strategic Communication at U.S. Chess, a 501c3 nonprofit with an educational mission of empowering people through chess, one move at a time. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button. There you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print or digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, discounted chess books and equipment, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. Now, let's start your clock and listen to this month's edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Welcome to the July edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. This is Daniel Lucas, the Senior Director of Strategic Communication for the U.S. Chess Federation. And my guest for this month is Mike Klein, the Director of Content for Chess.com. He's also known as Funmaster Mike on ChessKid.com. You might remember Mike as he was our first guest on our very first show, the April podcast. Um, he now has his own non-chess-related podcast, Extreme Travel Odysseys, which tells the stories of adventurers whose journeys are in some way offbeat, creative, or never-ending. Mike is a two-time chess journalist of the year, and he penned our July cover story on the U.S. championship with Sam, about Sam Shanklin's exciting win. So welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Dan, for having me on the hot seat, and congrats on your new title. It was well-deserved. Well, thank you. Yeah, listeners, you may have heard me introduce myself as Senior Director of Strategic Communication. That is a new job title, uh, newly created position at the U.S. Chess Federation. Uh, Melinda Matthews, our assistant editor of Chess Life, has been promoted to the also newly created position of publications editor. And under that title, she will be the editor of Chess Life magazine, effective with the July issue. So, Mike, tell us a little bit about this podcast of yours. Uh, even though it's not chess related, I, I'm sure that our listeners will find it fascinating. Uh, yeah, thanks, Dan. Actually, a couple of my guests are chess players, although we don't talk about chess. Um, so uh, we'll go ahead and do the shameless plug at the beginning of this episode. But uh, ExtremeTravelOdysseys.com kind of chronicles some people I've met in my travels and some unique or interesting things they've done. You don't exactly have to climb Mount Everest to be a guest. You just have to do something a little bit off the beaten path. So we've got travel writers, we've got sailors, we've got uh, uh, trail runners. We've got people that have bicycled across continents. So uh, I really love creating content and it's just kind of nice to step outside the chess world a little bit. So um, like all podcasts, I, I love new listeners. I love ratings and reviews. So if you want to go to extremetraveloddysies.com, you can listen to the first couple episodes or you can also go to the Facebook page and um, and like it so you get all the new updates. But it's it's pretty exciting as I'm sure you know with this podcast, it's a it's a new medium and a new way to reach people. Yeah. What's the most exciting uh, travel adventure you've had? Uh, well, that's pretty easy for me because about 10 years ago, I took a sabbatical, which is just a fancy way of saying I didn't feel like working that year. When, when you're self-employed, it's not like it's a real sabbatical. Uh, but I took a year off of work to travel for about 10 months, uh, more specifically. And I had an around-the-world ticket on Delta. And uh, yeah, I spent the entire year traveling. In fact, one or two of my guests are coming from that trip, people that I've still kept in touch with. Um, so there's Many different things I did on that trip. I went shark diving. I went sandboarding. Um, you know, I saw the pyramids. I saw the, uh, you know, Sim Reap in Cambodia. I uh, went to Ha Long Bay in Vietnam. I mean, there's just 
tons of different things. Um, I've actually got a video that I may add to my website, extremetraveloddysies.com, uh, which has the entire trip all in one video, but it's kind of a lot to explain. And uh, at the end of the day, this is not a travel podcast, but uh, I do did play some chess during that trip. Well, let's turn it into a travel chess podcast. What I'll throw you a little bit of a curveball. What was your most exotic chess travel? Most exotic chess travel? Um, that's a good question. I did play a chess game on the roof of the U.S. Embassy in Cairo. Um, I can't even describe how I ended up there. A Marine was having a promotion party. So that was that was a pretty random place to play a chess game. Um, I also, you know, in that trip, I saw people playing chess in parts of the world that I just would never have expected. I took a bus from the Namibia-Zambia border, and it's basically... It is uh, idyllic, archetypical African travel. The border post was a guy under a tree with a little, you know, uh, chalkboard writing how much a visa fee was. And the two border guards were playing chess underneath this tree in the middle of the desert. Um, so, but, you know, I, I didn't have to win a game of chess to get in the country or anything. I just had to pay my $50. So um, but ch chess really is everywhere. It was almost no country I went to where there wasn't somebody doing something chess related. You know, that that's very interesting. It's uh, I'm sure it's made for some interesting pictures and stories as well. So, uh, so let's get into our July cover story. Um, so we had a bit of a surprise with Sam Shanklin winning, or was it not a surprise? I say surprise because our readers certainly thought so in the Twitter poll we did when we asked if anybody could beat the Nakamura Caruana so triumvirate. So what do you think? Uh, absolutely. I believe the results of that Twitter poll were something close to nine out of 10 respondents thought that one of the big three was going to win. Um, I was actually trying to figure out if Shanklin's win was comparable to anything else in the U.S. Chess Championship. Now, we certainly had upsets before in tournaments around the world. I mean, there's, you know, there's tournaments every weekend. Things are going to happen. I mean, even I won North Carolina's biggest tournament once upon a time. But, but talking strictly about the U.S. Chess Championship, I went back in time trying to figure out, is this comparable to anything else? Now, 10 years ago, Yuri Shulman won. But I looked, and Yuri Shulman was the sixth seed in 2008. Shanklin was also the sixth seed. But Yuri wasn't nearly as much of a ratings underdog against those top three. It wasn't even close. Um, so that's not really terribly comparable. In fact, I had to go all the way back to 1989 to find something even remotely close. It was in that year that Stuart Rachels finished in a three-way tie for the U.S. Chess Championship with Roman Jinjihashvili and Yasser Sarawan. Now, Rachels only got in that tournament because he was the U.S. junior closed champion. So he used the automatic invite just to get in that tournament. And uh, I believe, you know, he's, he only made IM, but I believe... I. I'm not sure 100% about this. He was only an FM at the time that he played in the tournament. Um, and, and to show you how Shanklin's performance might be even better than that one, that was a 15-round tournament. Stewart had four wins and the rest draws. He went plus four. Shanklin played an 11-round tournament and went plus six. And like three of the players were against the top 10 in the world, um, which I don't think Stewart had that level. I mean, he, you know, he had to play Yasser Sarawan, a couple other great players, but uh, there, there may just not be anything else comparable in U.S. championship history as to what Sam Shanklin just did. And he certainly backed it up with wins in Cuba, and he also just um, won the Continental Open as we're recording this. So is what what's happened? Why has he made this jump? 
You know, I don't know. Sometimes uh, people put it together all at the, all the same time. This often happens in scholastic chess where kids don't have this sort of gradual rise. They sort of jump and plateau and jump and plateau. But we don't see it as often in these professional circles, especially with a player who's basically been a professional for quite some time. Um, so I don't know that Sam can point to anything in his training regimen that was different. But I now think that he thinks he belongs amongst the top players. Um, you know, when I interviewed him out in St. Louis, he said he didn't think he really had a chance until two rounds to go. And keep in mind, he was pretty much tied for the lead or in the lead the whole time. Um, but he didn't believe in himself that the results were going to work out the way they would uh, to give himself a real chance until after round nine. Uh, so he took that confidence to Cuba. He took it to the um, uh, the, the Pan American uh, tournament that got him into the World Cup here and one of the automatic invites. Um, and, and a funny thing is, as we record this now, people are calling him Triple 27 because he's 27th in the world and his rating is 2727. Um, so I'm sure he, he'd like one of those numbers to go up, one of those numbers to go down. But uh, I, I don't see where, where he's stopping at this point. And to be fair to Sam, uh, this wasn't exactly a bolt from the blue. I mean, he was a board gold medalist at a chess Olympiad, um, and he's a high-level analyst for other world championship candidates himself. So I guess it, it's only the fact that he was competing against a current world championship candidate and another, you know, uh, two great players that made it just really seem to stand out as an unusual happening. That's true. And at that Olympiad in 2014, when he went just completely nuts and, you know, won like eight games and drew two, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I'm pretty close on those. His performance rating was a little over 2,800, if I'm not mistaken, whereas in the U.S. championship, it was in the high 2,800s. And also he was playing board four. So, you know, he wasn't playing the country's best, whereas in this tournament, he had to play three of the world's best players. So tournament performance rating wise, U.S. championship was better than Olympiad. But you, you bring up a good point. I don't know if it's fair to call him a streaky player, but he has these sort of incredible results in him. And uh, I don't think for the next couple of years we'll ever be able to have a conversation about who's the favorite without giving Sam a serious mention. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm curious about our April cover that kind of poked fun at the idea that, you know, could anybody topple the big three? Was that cover at all a topic of conversation in St. Louis? I definitely had some people talk to me about the article. Now, are you talking about the art itself? Yeah, the art itself that showed, can anybody um, tip the scales against these top three players or the top two uh, women players? Fans definitely talked about it with me, and some of them brought their their issues, I believe, to have it signed by the players. Um, there's only one player that brought it up, and um, it was a player that didn't like the picture that was chosen. Um, you might be able to guess it was a female player, but I, I guess I won't say names unless you, unless you really want me to divulge everything I know about the, the tournament. But, uh, you know, players often don't get the choice, or they don't get the choice of which photo is used. And, and it was a little bit of a caricature type uh, cover where we had, you know, oversized heads and things. So, but uh, anyway, I, I'm sure that this person realized it was all in good fun at the end of the day. And that's all it was. It was just uh, trying to generate interest among the fans. Um, so you, you mentioned about how these kind of results often happen in scholastic events. And there, there were a couple of things scholastic related about the championships that I found interesting. One, Sam is somebody that came up through the U.S. chess scholastic ranks and didn't even start playing his first rated tournaments until he was 11 years old and was uh, came out with a, a beginner's rating to start with. The age of 11 it's, it, nowadays is really kind of a late blooming start. Uh, can you imagine 
uh, in 10 or 15 years that anybody could win the U.S. championship who didn't start in uh, at a you know a single-digit year? Winning the U.S. championship, yes. Becoming top 30 in the world like Sam is, I'm just not sure. Um, you know, these days, the, the record for youngest U.S. master keeps moving down uh, in, in terms of actual age. I think it's in the low nine years old these days. And so that means that there's there's a whole handful of kids that have become a chess master prior to the age that Sam even started playing his first tournament games. Now, maybe this helps Sam with burnout. Of course, I say that there was at least one period of time where, where Sam did leave chess for almost a year or so. So I guess there was a little bit of burnout with him too. But uh, I think everything is very individualistic upon the player. And uh, I, you know, a lot of people have gone on to much bigger things than me in chess. And I learned when I was four, and I can't even say I had a really a big period of burnout. Um, so some people get into things later. And when you get into something later, you really know what you like. Um, however, the question is, can you replace those early years, those formative years? Um, it seems unlikely at 11. I mean, maybe eight or nine is the latest I can think of where somebody could learn the game and go on to become a world elite player. So this this may be kind of a, a rarity, especially because kids are uh, assimilating information so much faster than ever before because of the fact that, you know, access to information is flat these days. And the other really cool scholastic story is Annie Wang's incredible performance where she almost won the whole shebang for the women's championship. Um, it was only just in the final Armageddon game against Nazi Pakidzi that um, Nazi was able to win her second championship. Where did this come from, from, from Annie? Uh, Annie specifically, I'm not sure. There's a whole group of uh, young female players that I believe we talked about in our first podcast, and uh, we wanted to see which one was going to finally rise up. And Jennifer Yu uh, was riding the hottest streak and had the highest rating, but ended up being Annie. Um, you know, Annie, uh, well, it's actually, I want to talk about something first. A Annie's story is actually a little bit more tragicomic than I first realized. While researching um, the July issue of Chess Life and Chess Life for Kids, it turns out her final round classical loss um, against Sabina Foisher in round 11 cost her dearly because not only did winning the U.S. Women's Championship get you an automatic bid to the Batumi Olympiad, uh, which you know, losing that classical game and losing the tiebreak means she lost the automatic bid. But guess who the one woman is that beat her on rating for the final spot in Batumi? I'm not going to guess. Who was it? It's Sabina Foisher. And in fact, it's a complicated formula over how women qualify or how, you know, how open players qualify for the open team. But it's basically a mixture of USCF rating, your peak rating, your FIDE rating. And Sabina ended up edging uh, Annie Wang by a small amount because of that game, I believe. I haven't done all the exact math. So it was a double whammy loss for Annie to lose in round 11. She lost the automatic bid, and the one person she did not want to give away points to for rating qualification was the woman that ended up passing her for the spot. So I wanted to explain that out fully because I didn't get a chance to explain all that in the actual chess life story myself because the Olympiad teams weren't that clear at the moment. Um, as far as why she was able to do so well, I don't even know that she'd be able to tell you because she wasn't being coached in the middle of the tournament. Um, she was, you know, just doing her own thing. She was doing schoolwork every night, so she clearly wasn't putting pressure on herself. She even did schoolwork the night before the final round, which I thought was was quite amazing. Um, so she seems to not sense when the moment is 
possibly bigger than her. Uh, and that's going to serve her well going on down the road, um, that she's going to be able to play her best chess. I know she faltered in the final rounds, but she didn't feel the kind of pressure that I think almost any other human would feel along the way. Um, do you happen to know, is she attending public, private, or is she homeschooled? I think it's public. Um, I mean, she definitely talked about the fact that her teachers um, were expecting her to do work. So I don't sense that it was um, homeschool, but I can't say 100% sure if it's public or private. And I believe also Annie carries two FIDE titles, uh, the FM and the Women International Master. Yeah, and this is a little tricky sometimes in my reporting over which one um, I, I write down. Most women that have the dual title IM and WGM prefer IM simply because it's a little harder to get that title. The requirements are a little stricter. When it comes to WIM and FM, that's a little trickier. I tend to put WIM simply because that requires norms. And being an FM does not require norms. Um, it's, you just have to be 2300. So, uh, but you know, if a player gives a personal preference, I'll either put both down or whichever one they pick. Um, to be honest with you, there's not a whole lot of players that particularly care. Um, but I think with her, I generally write WIM. Yeah. Let's move on to photography because you took uh, just a wonderful photo of the, the moment that Sam won the event. And we used this photo to lead the article in, in Chess Life, but we also used it to co uh, grace the cover of the June issue of Chess Life Kids. Um, so a couple of things. One, did you anticipate this shot coming? And so it was a little bit of being uh, prepared or, and, and I should describe it. This, this is a photo of Sam punching the air right as he realized he had won the whole championship. So t tell us a bit about how that photo came about. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the, the photography core uh, was definitely crowding around. Um, this is one moment in chess where it helps to be a competent chess player. And that's about all I am is competent, but I can kind of sense when it's time to throw in the towel. So, um, you know, I was, I was vulturing, as you might say, um, part of photography is just being in the right place at the right time. So we were all hanging out by Sam's board. And, and I guess we all do need to owe a bit of an apology to a wonder Liang because a wonder knew why we were crowding there and he looked perturbed, but you know, the sporting element exists. We have to get the picture. We obviously weren't, uh, you know, interfering with a wonder or whatever, but I think everybody in that room, no, we were all waiting for a wonder to resign. Um, you know, a wonder will get his day in the sun. We're waiting to take a picture of him, you know, punching the air, that sort of thing. Um, so as soon as the game uh, ended, I already had my camera on, um, on, you know, multiple uh, frame shooting and I just held the button down and started getting, you know, uh, I think it's 10 pictures a second or six pictures a second, whatever my, whatever my weak camera is capable of. Um, but, you know, photography is allowed in the room. Um, a lot of people uh, switch their camera to uh, silent filming. And, uh, you know, Leonard Otez, who uh, is one of the best chess photographers out there, he bought a mirrorless camera. So his camera is obviously a lot quieter. Um, but, the, you know, you just have to kind of keep your distance as best you can. In that moment, though, when he won the tournament, we, his board was away from everybody else's that was that was still playing, so we weren't really interrupting them. Um, so yeah, but you just have to you just have to get the shot. Um, of course, in the women's uh, tournament that went into the Armageddon, there was absolutely no problems taking pictures right after the game ended because it was the only game in the tournament room. You weren't interrupting anybody at all. So uh, so yeah, just just showing up and being there is half of the skill of photography.
So you said that um, photography was allowed throughout the rounds, or was that just for for the uh, the pros? Were the fans allowed to take photos as well? Fans were allowed. Yeah, they only allow flash for about five or ten minutes. Um, to be honest, in that room, we almost never use flash. There's a lot of natural light coming in the room. Um, but as long as you keep your distance and respectful, and you're just as respectful, I mean, you don't want to be taking pictures when players are in time trouble, trying to make the the first time control or something. You got to be a little bit respectful of that. Um, so there, and there's also not really a moment where you really need to catch, um, the very end of a game now, when it, uh, except for the championship game like this now, uh, for my chess.com daily news reports, I was doing daily videos of players. And oftentimes I would film some B roll of two players shaking hands at the end of the game. But when you're filming, you're on silent. It's just, you know, pressing record and there's no shutter, um, but uh, yeah, investing in a, in a mirrorless camera is definitely kind of the way to go these days. They're becoming much more popular. And especially for chess, you can be even that much more respectful toward the players, not even having the sound go off. So, But the arbiters tell all, the, all of the regular fans, turn the beep off on your camera, turn the flash off. And I don't think there's a lot of major problems with fans uh, you know, doing that at the end of the game. And as we said, we use, this is the cover of Chess Life Kids. So you are kind of a, a two for one on this on this story, uh, t- tell us a little bit about writing for children. Do you have any special training in that, or is it just something that comes naturally to you having taught kids for so long? I think it's more the second. There's definitely no special training, but uh, I've been teaching classic chess for about 20 years. So just trying to relate to them and figuring out, you know, what is a kid going to want to hear about? And, um, you know, it's funny because even some of the stuff I do for chesskid.com helps. For example, when we are uh, writing an intro to a video, you know, to be, as much as it pains to say, most kids aren't going to care that it was some Steinitz game because there's only a couple of names that really have gravitas in the kid world. Um, so just kind of getting inside the head of a kid and understanding what kind of language, what kind of metaphors a kid wants to hear about. Um, and in particular, the angle I took on the Chess Life for Kids article was how a, an everyday kid what path that everyday kid has to becoming U.S. champion or U.S. women's champion. Um, the path is long, but there are certain qualifiers you can do in order to get to the next level, to the next level, to get in the tournament, to win the tournament. And so we talked a little bit about that. I think everybody listening to the podcast knows that it's it's pretty unlikely that you go through all of the steps. Um, but hey, as we just said earlier, Stuart Rachels won the U.S. Junior Clothes Championship in 89, and he used the automatic ticket to be a U.S. champion. So it is possible to win a national, the top national title by going through all of the automatic steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should tell our listeners at this point that for our adult listeners who don't get Chess Life Kids, if you don't realize it, whether you're a regular or a premium member of U.S. Chess, you can still access the digital edition of Chess Life Kids. Just go to uschess.org and click on the Chess Life Kids cover at the bottom and you can either read the digital edition or download a, a PDF copy. And by the way, for our scholastic listeners who do get Chess Life Kids, that works in reverse as well for Chess Life Magazine. So our members have um, can, can access it all online, whether they're getting print or just online access as a member. Um, so Mike, I'm going to start something here that you're, you're going to be the first one for our brand new best question contest. Um, for our listeners who heard on the June edition that we are no longer doing the trivia, the cover trivia contest because we just weren't getting enough um, responses to that. And I think a, a question contest is is much more likely to generate responses. And 
Our best question contest still will win a $50 gift certificate to U.S. Chess Sales. Uh, it's generously sponsored by uscfsales.com. If we get an, we will read questions on the air that you send to letters at uschess.org. Just indicate that it's for the podcast. And while we may we may read a number of questions, only one will be selected as the best question. And this very first best question comes from uh, Women's International Master Dr. Alexi Root, who's a frequent contributor to Chess Life, and who I would like to shout out as having suggested this best question contest. And her question is, Mike, you stated on the April podcast that U.S. women's champions have received and turned down invitations to play in the round robin U.S. championship. Was your statement correct? I believe we get to do our first retraction on the podcast because I have to retract that statement. Um, uh, one of the dangers of, of uh, coming into this and speaking off the cuff is that sometimes your facts aren't right. And I uh, misspoke because apparently that is not something that was ever in place during the closed championships where there's, where there's an elite round robin. There's some years where the women played alongside the men for, for lack of a better term. And a woman, uh, the women were competing against men, but the top scoring woman would become the U.S. women's champion. Um, so I don't think that was ever the case. However, the U.S. senior champion was given an automatic invite. And the U.S. junior champion still to this day is given an automatic invite. Uh, I thought by extension, the U.S. women's champion would have been, but apparently that was never a rule. Perhaps it should be, but it's not. Well, thank you for that follow-up, Mike. And thank you, Alexi, for the question. Your $50 gift certificate will be on its way to your email inbox. And and Dan, if I might, I'm going to give a question for Alexi. Maybe she's got my personal email. Maybe she can get back to me on this. But on the years where the women played alongside the men, if a woman had gone with a perfect score, would she have been declared champion of both tournaments? I, I really don't know. <laughs> so um, I know it's a retrograde history, but I'm, I'm curious what would have happened if a woman had won all of her games. Uh, would she be U.S. champion and U.S. women's champion? Would she only get to pick one of the two titles? I'm honestly not sure. Yeah, it's That's a good question, and but unfortunately, you don't get a gift certificate for it. So, <laughs> um, so listeners, um, if you want to participate in our best question contest, our August edition will be uh, with another repeat guest in Grandmaster Ian Rogers, who will have written about the uh, Caruana's victory at the Norway uh, Chess Classic. So get those to us at letters at uschess.org for your chance to win a $50 gift certificate to uscfsales.com. So Mike, this is uh, becoming a little bit of a tradition on the podcast, and it has to do with the tyranny of the printed inch. And you can't ever get all the information in the story that you want to. What's probably the, the what did you leave on the cutting room floor that you wanted to include in your article? That's a great question. I think a little bit more about Annie Wang, what I would have loved to have included. The way I decided to do it, because Annie Wang was only 15 years old, she was the second youngest woman in the event. I decided to focus on her a little bit more in Chess Life Kids. Uh, that way kids are reading about other kids. So she got a little bit of a you know, a short change in the chess life article, even though she was the story for 10 and a half rounds. So I do feel bad about that, Annie, um, but hopefully she'll take your advice and she'll read the chess life kids version online if she's not already getting that sent to her house. So that was probably the major story um, because, uh, and, and, you know, and the second thing would be maybe per the performance of um, Zviad Azoria. I mean, 
he wasn't mentioned in any regard except the novelty of having a new player in St. Louis. But he went two and a half out of three against the big three players. Um, couldn't include a lot of his games simply because, as you said, of space. So those are two of the neat stories about the U.S. championship. Um, in fact, Zviad's sister and mom showed up in the middle of the round in which he beat Fabiano. So that was kind of a neat thing, too. Um, but, uh, yeah, such is the nature of, of, of print. There's so many stories and side stories and subplots, but we couldn't get them all in. Yeah. So, Mike, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being our first two-time guest and listeners, uh, Chess Life July issue will be available on uschess.org beginning July 1st and hitting mailboxes soon thereafter for our premium members. Mike, thank you very much. Great article as always. Thanks so much, Dan. Pleasure to be on. Bye-bye. And now it's time for our monthly conversation with two-time women's U.S. champion Jennifer Shahadi who is our senior digital editor and responsible for website content, editorial, and social media. Welcome back, Jen. Thank you, Dan. You know, it's funny, ever since we started doing this podcast, it seems like the news for United States chess keeps getting better and better. This month, you know, we just see uh, Wesley So winning the first Grand Chess Tour event, Nakamura winning the next one, Fabiano winning Norway. Wow, what a time for U.S. Jazz. Well, exactly. And, you know, a few years ago, we called this in chess life uh, a golden age for uh, American chess. So, you know, we, maybe we jumped the gun. Maybe it's now a platinum age for American chess. Absolutely. I mean, speaking of platinum and gold, uh, the we just announced on U.S. Chess about a week ago the Olympiad teams and the 2018 Open Olympic team is going to be exactly the same team that won gold medals in Baku. So uh, that's very exciting because, you know, a lot of people weren't sure we were going to have exactly the same team, namely because uh, Fabiano Caruana is going to be playing for the world championship a few weeks after the Olympiad. So, I mean, I'm really blown away by his decision. Uh, and I think it's incredibly patriotic. It's, it's really something where I think all the, uh, you know, American chess players can say, that's just phenomenal, Fabi. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you you posted the announcement about our Olympia team uh, for for both the Open and the women's team in late June. And what will you have on the website through July? Well, in July we have a lot of things planned because it's really a big month. You know, we've got the Junior Clothes and the. Uh, the Junior Girls Championship and, of course, the beginning of the U.S. Open in late July. Um, and we're also going to be covering the National Open, the U.S. Senior Open that just took place. It's a really, really big month. The World Open, of course, is going to be underway um, for of July weekend. As for the Olympiad, we do want to ramp up our coverage and our support of them. So one thing we're doing is we're adding a top players area to the website just to make it kind of easier for people to find the news articles that relate to all the top American players and we're adding some bios of all the Olympic team members. So yeah, if you go to the community tab, which we actually recently added on the U S chess website, you'll see that there are some shortcuts to some of the topics that you might be most interested, like top players, women, postal chess, seniors, chess, um, by the way, there's a fantastic seniors article recently posted by Nathan Resica, who's both an opera singer and a senior champion. So we're just trying to make it a little bit easier to navigate because, you know, the homepage is very clean design, but for some people that can be hard because the fact that it's so clean means that there's not a lot of direct links. 
So just trying to make that a little bit easier for people. Yeah. And speak a little bit about that community tab, because it's not something that people are generally used to seeing on websites. So what's the idea behind it and how can our listeners actually utilize that? Well, it's just that in U.S. chess, there's just such divergent interests, right? Some people are interested in the elite chess world. Some people are more interested in the women's community and all the incredible things that are going on there. Uh, and some people come to U.S. Chess to uh, find out more about uh, the the college scene, the postal scene, the scholastic scene. So I think as our website continues to grow and develop, uh, we just want to make sure that it's easy for people to find the kind of news that they're most interested in. And of course, social media is doing a lot of the work for us in that way with with their algorithms, um, you know, sending people to the stuff that's most likely to interest them. Uh, but you know, putting it into your own hands as well and making sure that people uh, come to the site directly so that they don't miss stories. We really love the fact that U.S. chess is booming on social media, on both Facebook and Twitter. And really, if you do look the stats, and I'm sure the U.S. chess news is not alone, that's how a lot of people get to articles these days, Stan. I mean, they, they're on their Facebook, they see an article and they click on it, right? Yep, right. And do we have any other social media besides Facebook and Twitter? Yeah, we have actually two Instagram accounts. We've got our, our U.S. Chess Instagram account, and then we also have our U.S. Chess Women's Instagram account. So those are those are basically the uh, the three most popular social media networks that we have now: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I mean, we do have a Snapchat can, uh, account and Twitch accounts, but the uh, that that big tree are the ones that we're using most right now. And going back to the website for July. Uh, so is there one article that you're really excited about seeing as post coming up this month? Well, Nathan Resico, who I mentioned earlier, is going to do a follow-up on you know his article about preparing for the Senior Open Championship, and he's going to tell us how it all went in New Orleans. So I'm really excited about that because his first article was just so inspiring. It was really about how it doesn't matter what age you are, and you got to not listen to the haters that say, oh, there's a six-year-old kid that beat you, therefore you have no chance, whatever. Uh, so I really like that. I think it's a powerful statement. It doesn't matter how old you are. You can always get better at chess and get something from it. And Nathan really drove that home. So it'll be interesting to see how he follows that up with his actual week in New Orleans. Yeah. So uh, once again, listeners, we have an exciting month for you, not just on Chess Life, but in all of our social media and our website coverage. There is just a wealth of opportunities for you to get that U.S. chess news that you're looking for and craving. So Jen, thank you very much. And until next month, we'll speak again. Thank you for joining us on this July edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Make sure and join us next month for our August edition when we will be talking to Grandmaster Ian Rogers, another repeat visitor to our podcast, about his story on the Norway chess event and Fabiano Caruana's thrilling victory over a stellar field, including his world championship challenger, Magnus Carlsen. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.